Good morning, uh, Refuge Church. There's so much going on in our church. And when Daniel told me to preach, you know, he said, you can pick whatever passage that you want to preach from. But I also had to keep in mind, you know, about everything going on. You know, we have our loved ones who are hurting so much pain, and we feel powerless because we can't do anything as they go uh, through what they're going through. And then God put uh, Psalm 73 in my heart. And so two weeks ago, my host family, mom and dad, went to Colorado, and me and my wife watched uh, my four siblings one thing about kids is that they question everything, right? So they thought because their parents were gone and I'm watching them, they can have their way. So it's like, I want to bake. No. Why? Because you're not supposed to. You're not old enough, right? But why? You know, it's like they question everything. Why? Why? And I think we as adults, do that sometimes, right? We have so many why questions. Why did God create us? Why is there suffering if there is a good God? And the one question that has been bothering me for a long time, which I want to share with you guys this morning, is why do good people suffer? And why do bad people have a good life? It seems like they have a good life and they're doing so much better than people who are living up for Christ and are going through so much suffering, right? And so that's what I want to look at this morning. And Psalm 73 is about one of David's uh, uh, choir master who is struggling with this idea, right? And it's like, God, what's going on? I want answers. And so that's what we'll be looking at this morning because I think it's an appropriate question for us too. And my goal is not to give you an answer this morning, but my goal is to see where God, what God says and what God speaks uh, using Psalm 73. So let's pray as we start. Jesus, thank you for being a good God. Thank you that even in the midst of suffering and pain, like you are merciful. You enter those suffering and pain with us. And we are never alone. And so I just pray that you speak to us. Send your Holy Spirit to fill our hearts and teach us this morning. Thank you for this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 73. And I read. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my faith had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten, op op 
they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, your people turn to them and drink of waters in abundance. They say, how will God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is, the, this is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishment. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes when you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I'm always with you. You hold me by your right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell all your deeds. Amen. So what's going on? Can we go to verse 1? Let's start in verse 1, right? Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, right? So the Psalms begins with a proverb. Stating an ancient wisdom, God is good to those who are pure in heart and upright. And who are the upright? Those who have a desire to serve God. People who walk with God. People who are known for their good deeds. Who love other people. Who obey God's commandments. This is the worldview of an order to life that for those who align themselves with God's purposes, some payback in the form of reward can be expected. Right? If you do good, then surely God has to be good to you. Right? And so in Psalms chapter 1, In Psalms chapter 1, it says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in the, in the step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yield its fruits in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. God is with those people who do good things. And then in Isaiah chapter 3, 10, 
tell the righteous, it will be well with them, for they will enjoy the fruits of their deed. Good things should happen to good people. How wonderful will that be if the world actually works that way? And that's what the psalmist starts with. But then something troubles him in verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Right? And why is that happening to him? Because he had become envious of the success of the wicked. It's like good people are going through so much pain and suffering. And you have all these bad people living it up. Like what's going on, God? And this bothered him so much. And then if we read from verse 3 to 12, right? I, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, right? And so some of the things that he mentioned that he was jealous about is they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens, not plagued by human ills. They are very prideful and violent. Their heart is full of iniquity, and their evil imaginations have no limits. They speak with malice and threaten the oppressed. And also, because of their arrogance, they, they lay claim to heaven and take possession of the earth. Injustices against human beings does not satisfy them. Hence, they also take aim at heaven, both in words and deed. And then how do they do that? By this, the psalmist implies blasphemies against God, abuses against God's people, drunken rage against the divine temple. And he said so more clearly in Psalms 43. My tears became my food day and night. When it was said to me, where is your God? Where is your God? Also, one of the things that they do is they deny having any responsibility toward God. In their lifestyle, they talk, beg, eat, and drink freely and worship power as the path to happiness. Charles Spurgeon in his commentary on Psalm 73, says this about these people. While many saints are poor and afflicted, the prosperous sinner is neither. He is worse than other men, and yet he is better off. He plows list and yet has the most food. He deserves the hottest hell, and yet has the warmest nest. Does that make sense? It's like, these are the worst kind of people. And so why do they have the better life? It doesn't make sense. And then the opposite is the case. You know, good people. You know, I, I think of Dave and I think about the loved ones who, you, your loved ones who are going through so much. It's like those people shouldn't be going through what they're going through. Why is that? And that is what the psalmist is struggling with. And then in verse 13, he says this, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. It's like, what good does it do to be a good person? 
It doesn't. It doesn't pay, right? I'm trying to do what's right. I'm trying to keep my heart pure. I'm trying to follow all the commands. I'm trying to be the best me and worship you and to make you everything. And yet, I am the one who is suffering. I'm the one who is going through so much pain. What good is it to be a good person? It doesn't pay. And sometimes we ask that question too. I know I do all the time. You know, back during my college days, I remember my junior year, you know, one of the things I did Friday night was watch Cool Runnings and eat ice cream. That was me. And Cool Runnings is my favorite movie. I have memorized every line. So if you watch that movie with me, I'm going to give it to you line by line. But I, <laughs> but I remember one Friday, you know, I was, I was scrolling through Netflix. I was like, oh, Machine Gun Preacher. It's like, okay, that's new. It sounds interesting. And, and Machine Gun Preacher is, is a true story about a, a biker, I think, from Texas. His name is uh, Sam Childers, right? And so he decides to go to East Africa, I think it's Uganda, and help rebuild homes that were damaged from uh, the Civil War. You know, but when he went there, his heart was broken because... Because of, you know, the reality of, you know, just, I mean, there was so much pain and anguish, but also there were so many child soldiers who, you know, they were just out there and doing insane things. And it's like, man, maybe I should stop building homes. And so he starts a mission group where, you know, he invites some of his friends, and they buy weapons, and their mission is to bring those child soldiers home, right? But in the movie, to be recruited as a child so soldier, you know, their leaders will make them kill their parents. Right? It's like, God, why will you let that happen? Right? These are kids. Why can't you protect them? Right? And I just remember being really upset at God because I'm like, if I run the world, I'm going to run it way better than you because these are innocent children and they shouldn't be going through this. Right? And that's why in verse 13, surely I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. But what good is it to be righteous when the wicked seem to be going to be doing so much better in life. And we, we see that in the Bible, right? In 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 5 to 7, it's about Hezekiah. And this is what it says, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. Like Hezekiah was the real deal. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses, and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. Like before Hezekiah, there were terrible kings. And even after he died, there were terrible kings. Like Hezekiah was a good king. But then what happens to him? In 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 1 to 3, in those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. 
the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order because you are going to die. You will not recover. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember, Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with you wholeheart and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. It's like, what's going on? He didn't do anything. And God decided, oh, you are going to die? It's like, it doesn't make sense. And then in Job, in Job chapter 21, I mean, we know the story of Job. You know, God is like, Job is my man. All right? Bring it, devil. And Job was a righteous man, right? But the pain was so much for Job. In verse 21, in verse 21, studying, uh, in, I mean, in chapter 21, studying in verse 5, this is what Job said. Look at me and be astonished. Clap your hand over my mouth. When I think about this, I am terrified. Trembling seizes my body. Why do the wicked live on, growing old and increasing in power? They see their children established around them, their offspring before their eyes. Their homes are safe and free from fear. The rod of God is not upon them. Their bulls never fail to breed. Their cows calve and do not miscarry. They send forth their children as a flock, and their little ones dance about. They sing to the music of tambourine and harp. They make merry to the sound of the flute. They spend their years in prosperity and go down to the grave in peace. Yet they say to God, leave us alone. We have no desire to know your ways. Who is the Almighty that we shall serve him? What will we gain by praying to him? But their prosperity is not in their own hands. So I stand aloof from the counsel of the wicked. Yet how often is the lamb of the wicked snuffed out? How often does calamity come upon them? The faith God allots in his anger. How often are they like straw before the wind? And so Job is saying the same thing the psalmist is saying. It's like, why is this happening to me? And I'm the one who is doing what's right. And yet, these people are having a wonderful life. And then to move on in the Psalms, in verse 14 to 16, he says, All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings punishment. If I had spoken out like that, I will have betrayed your children when I try to understand distance. It just doesn't make sense. See, the problem worried the psalmist. It gave him sleepless night, as it does for some of us. Why do the wicked prosper? Why does God allow it to happen? The psalmist tried to understand this on his own, right? But in Romans chapter 11, verse 34, it says, Who has known the mind of God? Or who has been his counselor? I don't understand those things. I don't understand why God does does those things right but God has an answer he has to have an answer right because if he's got the whole world in his hands and he holds creation then surely 
he controls everything and nothing happens without his permission. So he has an answer. And then things start to get better. In verse 17, it said, Till I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their final destiny. So as the psalmist worshipped God at the center of worship, he began to understand God's perspective on the faith of the wicked. This is the turning point. So when your heart is downcast, where do you go to find an answer? Right? In Jeremiah 29 verse 13, it says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Like I have so many why questions to God. Right? And sometimes, no matter what good answer other people give us, it's not just enough. But there is one person who can satisfy us by giving us the answer that we need. And so that's what he does. He goes into the sanctuary to find an answer, right? And so what happens when worshipers go into the sanctuary of God, right? For some of us, we may have a mystical experience, an encounter with the holiness of God. Because as God's people gather for praise and prayers, they receive new understanding of God's moral requirements beyond self-sufficiency, affluence, and autonomy. Right? For the psalmist, it is not enough to try to think through the problem, though the question and doubts were catalysts to a more mature faith. It is okay to ask those hard questions, and it is okay to question God when things doesn't make sense. But understanding came when he humbled himself in the presence of God. And what answer did he get from God? Starting in verse 18 through 20, God revealed to the psalmist the ease and the security of the wicked was only an illusion. And they were set in slippery places, ready to fail at any time. Right? They will be swept and destroyed by terrors. You know, God says they are like a dream when one awakes, right? The psalmist understood that the good life of the ungodly is as fragile as a dream. And they will soon awake to the reality of the destruction, desolation, and terror that is in their path. Matthew Poole, uh, an English theologian, writes this. Their happiness is like a dream wherein a man seems to be highly pleased and transported with ravishing delight. But when he awakes, he, fights, he finds himself deceived and unsatisfied. What is the faith of the wicked? God will despise them as fantasies when he arises, right? And even Asaph admitted that it seems like God was asleep. Because everything was going well for them and God wasn't doing anything, right? And so he's like, God, are you asleep? Because we don't understand what's going on, but he wasn't asleep, right? Asaph knew that God will not always sleep in his tolerance towards the wicked. And one day, he 
will awake and judge them, and he will despise their image. For me, I want the wicked to be destroyed, like, quickly, right? I'm like, you do, just go away. But for some reason, you know, they linger around, and it's like, come on, God, do something. But God reminds Asaph, I have set a day when I'm going to end these people. And just, just think about some of the most horrible people in history, right? The first person I thought of was Emperor Nero, right? I mean, he hated Christians. He persecuted them heavily, right? I mean, he burned people in his garden, and he drew satisfaction from that. How did he end up? He committed suicide. What about Joseph Stalin? He's arguably the worst dictator in the world, right? I mean, he killed his wife. He killed his close friends. I mean, he, he killed millions of people. How did he end? He died of stroke. What about Hitler? Committed suicide. Mao Zedong died of a heart attack. Idi Amin, probably the worst dictator in Africa. He almost wiped half of the population of his country. And he, he I mean, he will kill people and eat their heart. Like, that's how evil he was. And it's like, why did you give this man power? Why did you make him ruler over his country? This is a bad man. But God put an end to him. He died from a kidney failure. We can think of all the worst people in history, Osama bin Laden, Gaddafi, you know, Saddam Hussein. I think of our politicians. I don't care so much for them. And it's like, why do they have power? Why are they the people who govern us? And yet, they have all the power and the wealth. But God says, I have an end to all of these people. But then this is the best part of the Psalms, right? This is the turning point. God tells us how the evil and the wicked will end, right? But what about the godly? What about the just? What about those people who don't deserve the pain and suffering? What is in for them? In verse 21 to 22, Asaph had to confess when God revealed to him the faith of the wicked. Verse 21 to 22, he says, Thus my heart was grieved. I was so foolish and ignorant. Right? Asaph confessed before the Lord his sinful lack of understanding before he went into the house of the Lord. He felt foolish that he had forgotten the truth of God's eternity and God's justice. He described himself like a beast, right? Asaph rightly observed that animals seem to have no concept of eternity. They live their life for, mo for momentary pleasure, satisfying natural urges. When Asaph forgot about eternity, he was truly like a beast before God. And so he had to say, I'm sorry, God. And then in verse 23 to 28, if we can go there, the glory of a heavenly hope. 
Yet I am always with you. You hold me by your right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. And I will tell of all your days. Isn't this wonderful news? Right? And so what is the, like, what do the righteous get? Right? In verse 23 to 20, uh, to verse 24. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by your right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And so Asaph here is declaring both that he was with God and God was with him. For him, it wasn't just enough to say that God was with him. He also had to confess that he was with God. That is something the wicked don't have. Only the righteous have that. And then, whom have I in heaven but you? This is a beautiful expression of a longing heart for God and eternity. Intellectually, Asaph probably understood that there was so much more in heaven. There were angels, you know, the streets of gold, you know, just hanging out with Abraham and all those people would dream of hanging out. Yet, all of them, all of those things, Paled in the light of being in the presence of God. Being in the presence of God was so much better than anything for him. And then he said, there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. For Asaph, God was not only a heavenly hope, but an earthly desire as well. God was both his inheritance in heaven and his inheritance here on earth. That is something the wicked don't have, even though they have all the power and the wealth. And then in verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, Asaph recognized both his weakness and the strength of God and the enduring character of God's strength. We can boast in our weakness because we have God, right? What did Paul say in 2 Corinthians 12, 9? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast even more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is something the unrighteous don't have. And then verse 28, he says, It is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord that I may declare all your works. What does it mean to draw near to God? Paul's significant confession in Romans chapter 8, verse 38 to 39 answers this question. And he says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, or anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? That is something that we have that the unrighteous don't have. 
it is staggering to see how, how much good Asaph's visit to the house of the Lord did for him. It gave him understanding about an eternal perspective. He saw the value of putting his trust in God and understanding that God was reliable and God could be trusted. And because of this new understanding, he just wants to declare all the good works of all the good works of God. Because we need to hear about the eternal perspective that God has for us. So why does it seem like good people suffer way more than bad people? If you were if you were thinking I was going to give you an answer, I'm sorry. Because I don't have an answer that will satisfy you, right? I can, I can tell you, oh, James says, count it all joy because when you go through suffering, you become a better human being. That is not satisfying. Or I can say when you suffer, it shapes your character and does all of that. Those can be true, right? But it is not satisfying for some of us. And so where do we get our answer from? It has to come from the Lord. Because nobody else can comfort you like the Lord. But one answer that we have is that we know how the wicked, how the unjust, how the oppressors will end. right? Because the psalmist lays that here for us. But for the righteous, he says... They may have pain, sorrows, many trials and tribulations, but they will always have the greatest things of all, the eternity in Jesus. And that trumps everything, right? And so the psalmist had to confess that I don't care about wealth anymore. I don't care about power I don't care about all these material things that we strive to pursue here on earth because we think we deserve it. He's saying, I have Jesus. And there's nothing better than that. Jesus is better than anything. I'm reminded of this song by Jeremy Kemp, Give Me Jesus. He says, in the morning when I rise... Give me Jesus. When I am alone, give me Jesus. When I come to die, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world. You can have all this world. You can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, there's so many things about life that doesn't make sense to me, to us. And we doubt, we question. There's nothing bad with that. And sometimes we just want the world to work in a rational way. But at the same time, we know that our ways are not your ways or your thought, our thought. And we cannot question you because you are God. And I just pray that we can trust you. 
you have a plan, especially during difficult times. But we are grateful, Lord, because we are not defined by wealth and power and status or the pain that we go through in this life. We are defined by eternity with you. We just want you. Give us Jesus. May this be our prayers every day. And thank you because you are for us. And if you are for us, who can be against us? No one. So we thank you, Lord, for that. In Jesus' name, amen.